In the age of the internet, and with the rise of online influencers, it's all too easy for us to assume that what someone is showing us is true. We are often led so deeply into the lives of our favorite online creators that we feel we know them, and we trust that they are who they say they are. It's understandable, but this window into someone's life is often manipulated, and not everybody is truthful. In fact, sometimes they harbor terrifying secrets. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be investigating three crimes that all started online. The Twitter Killer For those familiar with Takahiro Shiraishi, he was the last person anyone would suspect of being a serial killer. Described as quiet but sociable, an attentive student, and as somebody who liked sports, Takahiro enjoyed a good relationship with his father and lived a seemingly ordinary life. After graduating from school, the young man went on to work in a supermarket for several years, but failing to enjoy it, quit and looked elsewhere. From here, Takahiro became a scout who recruited women for the sex work industry. Around this time, things began to fall apart. People began to warn each other about Takahiro, who was described as a, quote, creepy scout. He was eventually arrested for his scouting work and was given a suspended jail sentence. At some point in 2017, Takahiro told his father that his life had no meaning. In March of that year, he opened up a Twitter account to, according to prosecutors, contact women contemplating suicide, who he saw as easy targets. In August, the young man moved to Zama, 25 miles southwest of Tokyo, and rented an apartment there. Using his Twitter account, Takahiro told his victims that he could help them die, and in some cases, he even told them he would take his own life alongside them. His crimes came to light in October of 2017, when law enforcement was tipped off during a missing persons investigation. The brother of one of Takahiro's victims found messages from his Twitter account and asked a female friend of his to set up a meeting with the man on the other end of the account. However, Takahiro was not met with another victim, but instead confronted by the police. He told them that the corpse of the girl they were looking for was stored in his freezer. Authorities uncovered the body parts of nine victims in cooler boxes and other storage containers in Takahiro's own apartment. He had even discarded some parts into the apartment block's recycling bin. Neighbors of the young man later told reporters that while they'd noticed foul smells emanating from the home, they hadn't reported it. Takahiro later told police, and I quote, I killed them all and did some work on the bodies in order to hide the evidence. The gruesome, grisly crimes became a high-profile case in the Japanese media, sending shockwaves throughout the country. Earlier this year, 2020, aged 29, Takahiro stood trial. 
While his defence lawyers claimed that he should face a more lenient sentence because he had had the consent of the victims before taking their lives, Takahiro publicly disagreed with them, stating, There were bruises on the back of the victims' heads. It means there was no consent, and I did it so they wouldn't resist. As the trial went on, more information about Takahiro's activities came to light. Reportedly, the then 27-year-old would invite his victims back to his apartment, where he would sexually assault and strangle them before dismembering their bodies. Of his victims, Takahiro executed eight females and one male. The male was a boyfriend of one of the victims who'd come to confront Takahiro about his missing partner. Three of the victims were still in high school, with one of them being just 15 years old. Reportedly, the motive behind these heinous crimes was sex. Takahiro wished to carry out sexual assault fantasies without worrying about them denying his advances or being concerned with the repercussions. A friend from high school later indicated that the young man enjoyed choking others, although one former girlfriend of his said he was gentle and never angry. Currently, Takahiro's case is still ongoing. If convicted for murder, he'll likely face the death sentence, but if he is charged with murder with consent, he's more likely to face jail time for up to seven years. His sentencing is expected to be carried out before the end of 2020. His disturbing and awful case has led him to be dubbed the Twitter Killer, and his crimes have been likened to that of the suicide website murderer who killed three people in Japan in 2005. Takahiro's crime spree also resulted in Twitter introducing new rules against promoting suicide and self-harm. If you or anyone you know is struggling with either of these issues, please seek help. You deserve to be happy. It is always worth fighting for. David Russell and Marika Benedicto David Russell is almost certainly a name you are unfamiliar with. Despite the horrific and terrifying nature of his crime, the case was not widely covered in his native Great Britain, and as a result, is rarely spoken about outside of it. On April 1st, 2011, 20-year-old David Russell, who was, at the time, an employee at McDonald's, met up with Marika Benedicto, a 19-year-old from California who'd flown out to meet him. The pair had been engaged in an online relationship since 2010, with both of them using pseudonyms, which illustrated their shared love of heavy metal music. David went by the name of Ollie Sykes, after the frontman of Sheffield-based Bring Me the Horizon, a metal band, while Marikar went by Ruby Townsend. The couple were well aware of each other's aliases and reportedly even spoken on Skype before they finally decided to meet up. At some point, however, before Marika flew back to the UK, she found out that David had been leading a double life. He apparently already had a girlfriend, whom she messaged to let her know that the pair had met on Facebook and were continuing to talk there. It's unknown if this is what ultimately sparked what happened between the couple when they met in person. Upon meeting in Northampton, David took Marika to the Harlstone Furs Forest, According to prosecutors, he had her sit down on a fallen tree trunk and said he'd blindfold her so that he could give her a surprise present. After blindfolding the 19-year-old, David asked her to put her head back and her arms up. She did so, 
fully trusting him. Then David stepped forward and slit her neck. The two-inch wound was not enough to immediately kill her, so she attempted to run, pulling the blindfold off. David gave chase and shouted at her, why won't you die? When he caught her, he stabbed her in the back. Reportedly, the 20-year-old Brit stabbed his victim three more times, hit her in the face with a log, and even headbutted her. David only stopped attacking Marikar when she told him she'd given his name and address to immigration upon her arrival. The pair parted ways after this. David went home, where he was found later collapsed on the floor from a suspected overdose, while Marikar had gone to a nearby home for help. Luckily, she survived the wounds that had been inflicted upon her. David attempted to spin a story in which he claimed the 19-year-old had been blackmailing him, and that he had intended to scare her by scratching her neck. But in the end, no jury he faced was convinced by this story. According to the prosecution, the day before Marikar arrived in the UK, David had searched the web for several disturbing and incriminating things, including how to cut skin with a knife, the best knife to kill, and how to kill someone with your bare hands. A serrated bread knife was his weapon of choice and had been found in his home with him. A deleted list was also recovered from his mobile phone that contained the words bin bag, knife, gloves, blindfold, and money. It appeared to be an open and shut case. David's defense lawyers argued, however, that he was a good man. They described him as a hardworking individual who'd otherwise never done anything wrong, and stated that while he was young and troubled, his actions would never be repeated. It was also said that he was, quote, borderline autistic, although their basis for this is unclear. In October of 2011, at Northampton Crown Court, David Russell was sentenced to a minimum of 17 and a half years in prison, but this conviction was later quashed after he appealed on the grounds of the legal advice he'd received at the time. In 2016, a new trial began. During it, his defense pointed out that he didn't kill Marikar or inflict a single life-changing injury despite the fact that she almost certainly endured painful psychological trauma following the attack. They added that she had not survived because of intervention, but because he had stopped what he was doing and walked away, and that David was not a man who was violent by nature. The jury did not believe this, however, and took less than two hours to find him guilty of attempted murder in September that year. He was sentenced to seven years in prison and seven years on license. Gary Newman and Carly Ryan. In 2007, Carly Ryan was an ordinary 14-year-old girl living in Stirling, South Australia with her mother. Described as a sensitive and loving girl, in the 18 months leading up to her demise, Carly had begun speaking with a boy online, using the sites MySpace and VampireFreaks.com to communicate with him. By all accounts, she'd fallen head over heels for an 18-year-old musician named Brandon Kane, who was an American teen living in Melbourne. By January of 2007, the couple's romance had blossomed into not just an online relationship, but one that also took place over the telephone. That month, a serial paedophile named Gary Francis Newman traveled to Sterling from Melbourne under the guise of being Brandon's father. 
He called himself Shane and met up with Carly to present her with inappropriate gifts, which included lingerie and a nurse's outfit. He even met with her mother, Sonia, who allowed him to stay overnight and attend Carly's 15th birthday party. However, things quickly disintegrated when the 50-year-old man began to act erratically and made advances on the young girl, leading to Sonia kicking him out of the house. Afterwards, the concerned mother limited the time Carly could spend on her phone. Unfortunately, that is not where the story ends. On February 19th, Carly left the house to head to a friend's for a sleepover, but she didn't come home the next day. A terrified Sonia quickly alerted police, who discovered the 15-year-old's body at Horseshoe Bay in Port Elliot, face down in the shallow water, unresponsive. Emergency responders failed to revive Carly. She had endured 19 separate injuries, including between six to eight blows to the head. Her cause of death was reportedly a combination of facial trauma, smothering, and drowning. The police did not waste any time in their investigation. CCTV footage of the area showed Carly on February 19th with two males. Witnesses last saw her alive at 9.30 that night. Luckily, the perpetrators had used a distinct pale blue vehicle, which authorities traced to Mornington. 11 days after Carly's demise, a raid led to the arrest of Gary Newman and the detention of his adopted son, who was a minor at the time. A search of the home turned up a notebook in which Newman detailed over 200 online personas, as well as other attempts at grooming in Australia and beyond. Carly was not his first victim. A young girl in Singapore was threatened by Newman when he told her that she'd be left, and I quote, looking like the packaged meat from a supermarket after she rejected him. At the time of his arrest, the 50-year-old had been chatting online with another 14-year-old. It is believed that the motivation behind the crime was that Carly had rejected Newman's advances when he'd visited her. During his trial, the older man behaved erratically and initially denied ever knowing or meeting Carly. His identity was also suppressed for some time. In March of 2010, however, he was sentenced to life in prison with a 29-year non-parole period. Newman's adopted son, who had witnessed the killing, was cleared of all charges. To this day, his identity remains suppressed. Carly Ryan's case serves as a cautionary tale to young people and their parents. It was the first crime of its sort and led to online users and parents of online users becoming more aware of the dangers of the internet in the modern age. Several laws have since been passed in areas of Australia to help protect children while they're online. The Carly Ryan Foundation was also set up by Sonia after the trial was finished. This non-profit charity aims to promote internet safety to children, parents, and teachers alike. The organization hopes that they can prevent any more children meeting the same fate that Carly did back in 2007. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Also, please go and check out our previous video on the disappearance of Tara Calico. It's a deep dive into the case with more dynamic and active editing than we've ever done before. Please check that out. We are really proud of it. 
Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.